As I mentioned during our welcome, this is Trinity Sunday. Uh, we uh, honor, we worship God in Trinity and unity every Sunday. Uh, but um, since the 12th century, uh, the Sunday after Pentecost has been set aside as Trinity Sunday, as a Sunday to especially observe and celebrate God as he exists in Trinity and unity. Uh, that tradition was actually started in Canterbury, England, uh, again in the 12th century. Now the word Trinity is not found in scripture, in the Bible, uh, but Trinity is a theological shorthand for three sets of, of teachings that are clearly taught in scripture. The first is that there is only one God. Uh, that is clearly taught from the beginning uh, to the end of Scripture, both Old and New Testament. The second is that there are three distinct persons within the Godhead. Uh, if you want to get more specific, it's, uh, there is, uh, there is a one called God the Father, who is not the Son and who is not the Holy Spirit. There is one called God the Son, who is not the Father and not the Holy Spirit. And then there is one called God the Holy Spirit, who is not the Son and not the Father. For those of you who are theologians, I've ticked off that box for you. Uh, the third set of teachings is that each of these persons within the Godhead is fully God in every sense of the word. So these three sets of teaching are what we call the Trinity. And uh, these are not that hard to articulate, but as people have tried to describe, explain, understand the nature of God more deeply, uh, it's not hard to get off into uh, teachings uh, that are actually not biblical or not scriptural. And so it's important that we keep coming back to a true and biblical understanding of God as he lives in Trinity, as he exists in Trinity and unity. Uh, one of the traditions of Trinity Sunday is to read the Creed of St. Athanasius, or the Athanasian Creed. Now, of the three creeds that are, three ancient creeds that the Anglican Communion uh, uh, particularly endorses, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, which we usually read on Sunday mornings, and the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed is by far the longest and the most complex. It also describes God's existence in Trinity and unity most specifically and most particularly. It also has a little bit of an attitude to it, as we'll see. Uh, this creed is associated with Athanasius of Alexandria, uh, Bishop of Alexandria for a good part of the fourth century. Now this creed dates back to the fifth century, so it's unlikely that Athanasius actually penned it, but it is Athanasian in its content, its theology, and also I would say probably in its attitude as well. Athanasius was, as I mentioned, Bishop of Alexandria, Egypt, and he is best remembered for clearly articulating and defending uh, the Trinitarian faith. Uh, in his day, um, uh, a priest named Arius uh, uh, promoted the teaching that Christ was actually a created being subordinate to the Father. And there were many who followed that teaching. Uh, that teaching came to be known as Arianism and those who followed that teaching as Arians. And uh, during uh, Athanasius' 48 years as Bishop of Alexandria, he was exiled something like 17 times. 
some of those uh, times he spent in the desert with the desert monks uh, because he was not only in intense conflict with uh, churchmen who followed the teachings of Arius, but also the Roman emperor, emperors of that time uh, feared his uh, potential influence and also came after him uh, from time to time. And just to give you a flavor for uh, that age or era, I just want to read to you a, a story that has a little bit of humor to it, uh, but uh, lets you know a little bit of what Athanasius uh, went through and, and why he might have had a little bit of an attitude. Eusebius of Nicomedia and the other Arian leaders knew that Athanasius was one of their most formidable enemies. They soon began to take steps to assure his downfall, circulating rumors that he dabbled in magic and that he was a tyrant over the Christian flock in Egypt. As a result, Emperor Constantine ordered him to appear before a synod gathered in Tyre, where he was to answer to grave charges brought against him. In particular, he was accused of having killed a certain Arsenius, a bishop of a rival group, and having cut off his hand in order to use it in rites of magic. A chronicle with a flair for the dramatic reports that Athanasius went to Tyre as ordered, and after hearing the charges brought against him, he brought into the room a man covered in a cloak. After making sure that several of those present knew Arsenius, he uncovered the face of the hooded man and his accusers were confounded when they realized it was Athanasius' supposed victim, Arsenius. Then someone who had been convinced by the rumors circulating against, against Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, uh, he suggested that perhaps Athanasius had not killed Arsenius, but had cut off his hand. Athanasius waited until the assembly insisted on proof that the man, man's hand had not been cut. He then uncovered one of Arsenius's hands. It was the other hand, shouted some of, some of those who had been convinced by the rumors. Then Athanasius uncovered the man's other hand and demanded, what kind of a monster did you think Arsenius was? One with three hands? <laughs> Laughter broke out through the assembly while others were enraged that the Arians had fooled them. This is the milieu in which Athanasius uh, lived. And that may be as we read the, uh, the Athanasian Creed at the, at the end of uh, the message, uh, you'll, you'll get a sense of why there might have been a little bit of an edge or an attitude in it. Uh, <clears throat> the Trinity uh, is also uh, clearly taught in our lectionary readings from this morning. Our Old Testament readings clearly present God as one. And our New Testament readings have God in all three persons at work. In John chapter 3, Daryl read, uh, God the Father loves the world and sends his only Son. God the Son is lifted up to save the world. And God the Holy Spirit brings new life by giving new birth. In our reading from the epistle to the Romans in chapter 8 of Romans, the Father claims us as his children and as his heirs. The Son shares with us both suffering and glory. And God the Spirit testifies that we are children of God. In addition to the Trinitarian teaching of these passages in our lectionary, they also uh, reveal an important, uh, two important attributes of God as he lives and he exists in Trinity and unity, his transcendence and his imminence. And I'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, 
Last, uh, last weekend, my wife and I uh, celebrated our 30th we wedding anniversary. And uh, to, uh, to spend some time together, we went out to uh, Providence Canyon in uh, Lumpkin, Georgia. If anyone's been there, you know what I'm talking about. It is sort of billed as the, as the miniature Grand Canyon. And when we went there, um, Kim said, it looks just like the Grand Canyon. And I thought, this looks nothing like the Grand Canyon. <laughs> And this actually describes a lot of our 30 years of marriage. We are a great team because we see things somewhat differently. Now in this case, part of the reason is, is that my wife has never actually been down in the Grand Canyon, and I've had the chance to be down in the Grand Canyon not once, but twice in my life. The first time was when I was about 10 years old, and my father and I took a day hike all the way to the bottom of the canyon, and then all the way back. The way back was a lot rougher than the way down. And it's, it's amazing how you can live thousands of days and can't remember a thing about most of them, and then there's a few where you remember every detail. And that's one of them. And I think it's because it was both the transcendence of the canyon and the intimacy of a day with my father. But that's what, what is taught about God. He is both transcendent and imminent. Now those are words that we probably don't use every day, so I'll describe what they mean. Transcendence is that quality in this context of existing beyond creation, beyond comprehension, and beyond ordinary experience. In fact, the search for transcendence, in a sense, defines us as humans. We look for transcendence in art, in science, in music, in mathematics, in literature, philosophy, and theology, even in Things like athletics or politics or entertainment, we're often searching for something greater than ourselves, a sense of transcendence. And that God has put that need, that sense, that longing for the transcendent in our hearts. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That search for that which is beyond, that which is uh, incomprehensible, is part of our existence, part of that longing that's in our hearts. God's transcendence is clearly taught in our Old Testament readings from this morning. His, he is transcendent in his majesty and in his power and especially in his holiness. In Psalm 29, which we read responsively, we see that God is transcendent over nature. In the passage from Isaiah 6, uh, Paul read for us, uh, he is transcendent on his throne, which symbolizes his rule over all creation, both heaven and earth. God is transcendent. But scripture also teaches that God is imminent. Uh, imminence in this context being the quality of being within the limits of possible experience and knowledge. God is here with us. Uh, we can, if we will, recognize God's presence, his imminence in our daily lives, in the eyes of a child, in the face of the suffering, the cries of the poor or the embrace of a loved one, we can see God's presence. We can see God's presence in our desire for intimacy and connection. And we can see as believers God's presence in the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. God's imminence means that he is knowable. 
And, be, and it also means that God is with us and he desires intimacy with us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Our New Testament readings from this morning also talk about God's imminence, his intimate presence. Uh, these passages use the language of family. In John chapter 3, talks about being born again, born, being born again into a family, into God's family. Romans 8 talks about adoption. Now, what, pro, uh, what Paul probably had in mind here is a particular type of adoption in the first century Rome in which a male adult slave was adopted to become a son, have the full rights of inheritance as a son. But the critical elements here, the choosing and committing, are true of many forms of adoption. Uh, this, this illustration, this, um, this way of describing uh, who we are to God is a particular significance to, to us as a family. Um, our four children are all adopted. When my older daughter, Penny, was young, she came home from school one day and she was a little bit disturbed. I asked her what was on her mind and she, she felt different because she was adopted and, and the other kids were not and wanted to understand, you know, what's, what's the difference and, and um, you know, I explained to her that we love you just as much as uh, biological parents love their biological children. But beyond that, um, I explained to her, you're part of our family because we chose you. It wasn't an accident of biology. And we committed ourselves to you. Um, I explained to her that in, in, in my files is a piece of paper that legally binds me to her, to each of my children, um, for life. And uh, <clears throat> in a very literal and legal sense, everything that we have belongs to them. And that's what God does for us. He chose us in love and he committed himself to us so that in a sense, everything that he has belongs to us. We are uh, children of God, not only children, but heirs, co-heirs with Christ. And that gives us the right to call God not only Father, but Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word. It's a term of endearment, maybe like Papa or Daddy. Uh, it's the word that Jesus used in the Garden of Gethsemane when he called upon his heavenly Father, Abba. We have the right to call God Abba, Father. We have that right for at least three reasons. First of all, God the Father is our creator and we bear his image, the Imago Dei. We're also born again into God's family as Jesus taught in, in John chapter three. But then here in Romans eight, we're adopted into God's family as children of God and as co-heirs with Christ. And the Holy Spirit gives testimony to that together with our spirit. So God is both transcendent and imminent. Now this is difficult for some theologians because transcendence is being beyond, beyond creation, beyond understanding, and imminence is being within creation and within the realm or possibility of understanding and knowledge. But that's what scripture clearly teaches. As the great Anglican teacher and, and writer, theologian, uh, John Stott, 
wrote, uh, nevertheless, to use the terms of classical theology, the God who is transcendent beyond the universe is also imminent within it. Uh, the Apostle Paul taught the same thing in his address to the Athenians on Mars Hill. In Acts chapter 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He is transcendent. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, Yet he is actually not far from each of you. God is imminent. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. The final state of human existence will be when in the new heaven and new earth when God's transcendence and his imminence come together in perfect proximity. Revelation chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In God's perfect transcendence and imminence, um, all will be right. I'd like to conclude my remarks this morning by briefly summarizing three implications of God's transcendence, imminence, and trinity. First, God is the final destination on our search for both transcendence and imminence. As we, look for, um, as we look for that which is beyond, as we look for intimacy, uh, ultimately, God is at the end of that search. He is the final answer to our questions, both in our search for transcendence and our search for intimacy. We can see him in our daily lives, in our pursuits, and in our relationships if we look for him. Second, God can be both transcendent and imminent, and imminent precisely because he exists in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father is transcendent on his throne, and yet he loves us, cares for us, calls us his children. God the Son is at the right hand of the Father, yet he has walked our path. He knows our weaknesses, and he lives to make intercession for us. And God the Holy Spirit is among us, and lives within us and testifies together with our spirit that we are children of God and co-heirs with Christ. So who am I to God? I'm his beloved child and his adopted heir. We need to remind ourselves of that, of who we are. Let the Holy Spirit testify together with our, with our spirit that we are beloved children. And finally, where is God when I'm hurting, confused, and alone? We understand from God's imminence, his intimate presence, that he is closer than the breath I breathe, closer than the tears I shed. Amen. Please stand as you're able, as Daryl leads us 
in the reading of the Athanasian Creed. Uh, 